Hello. Just before we begin this week's podcast, I thought I'd just let you know that I'm going to do an online concert this weekend to coincide with the virtual Camino. Many pilgrims are walking in isolation. It'll be April the 12th, that's Sunday in Sydney at 11am, and that's Brisbane and Melbourne time as well, 11am Sunday. That means it's 9 o'clock Saturday night, April 11 on the US East Coast, 6pm Saturday on the West Coast of the United States, and 8pm Central Daylight Time. I'll play for about an hour, singing songs from my hit record Duende, and a selection of my favourite songs. So join me for happy hour, even if you people in Australia have a glass of something bubbly at brunch. 11am Sunday on Australia's East Coast, 9 o'clock Saturday night on the US East Coast, 6pm Saturday on the West Coast, and 8pm Central Daylight Time. The Singing Pilgrim. I hope you'll join me. Now to this week's podcast. Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. Can I begin this week by thanking you for your response to my last few podcasts? I really appreciate your feedback and support. I love getting emails and messages from all parts of the world. The Camino makes the world a smaller place. So please accept my most heartfelt thanks. This is a podcast about the Camino de Santiago, a pilgrimage. And pilgrims have walked the Camino for centuries. It really gained notoriety again 10 years ago when the Hollywood actor Emilio Estevez wrote and directed a film called The Way. His father starred in the picture. A father walks the Camino in honour of his dead son. I'm a Camino rookie. I've walked only twice, but I hope to get back again soon, like all of us. The Camino offers pilgrims a chance to wind back our expectations, to strip back our inhibitions, to cast out our preconceptions and to take the opportunity to try to be closer to what we hope to be, a pilgrim on the Camino and in life. I've been talking about my recent trip to the United States for the American Pilgrims on the Camino gathering. I was lucky enough to spend four days with Brian Danker. We met in San Jose, not far from Redwood City, where Brian lives. We travelled together to the gathering in Lake Tahoe in Nevada. We spent almost 15 hours together in the car, and we were almost snowbound at one stage coming home. I learned a lot about Brian Danker, but I also learned a lot from Brian Danker. The author Patrick Lindsay wrote, Every new friend is a new adventure, the start of more memories. Brian Danker's on the line from his home in Redwood City. Welcome, Pilgrim. Thank you, Dan. It's an honor to be here. It's, it's nice to hear your voice again. I know exactly where you are. You're in the backyard at your fire pit, enjoying the beautiful Californian weather. But there's a picture up in the corner, a picture frame in the corner of your man cave. Tell us all about yes. it. That's my, uh, one of my prized possessions, my Compostela. Um, I framed my Compostela and uh, uh, the two certificates that you get from uh, the office behind the cathedral in Santiago, along with uh, my scallop shell and uh, some little, uh, I don't know if you noticed them when I showed it off to you, but these little trinkets that uh, uh, my two Camino angels gave me as gifts to remember them always after doing the Camino with them. Uh, one is a miniature little policeman, and the other one is uh, uh, just the uh, a little metal piece of the arrow, uh, the famous arrow that we all see along the Camino. Because the Camino, and we're going to talk about your two Camino angels a little later, but the Camino really resonated with you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I, I had it on my bucket list for a long time. I I was a policeman for 28 years in San Francisco, and I, I knew that the, uh, my retirement date was coming on me fast and furious, and I knew that um, I needed to get things in order. I wanted to enjoy a long, happy retirement with my wife, and I, and I, wanted, to, uh, I wanted to do adventures. and. One of them was inspired by um, Martin Sheen and Mary Westerbez's movie, The Way. But what really happened was um, 
sitting at my desk in my my investigation unit, I had access to YouTube, and I found uh, Andrew Suzuki's um, uh, video piece on YouTube called Don't Stop Walking and Be On The Way. And because of that, more so that than the movie, I got hooked. I, I um, watched every episode once or twice. I was really moved by the interviews with all the different pilgrims that he met, people with cancer, people that had major losses in their lives, people that were uh, going on with their lives after the Camino and, and were just out there for, uh, you know, some for spiritual reasons, some for health, some for psychological reasons. But it inspired me to uh, to want to do it. So after I retired in 2013, I kept bugging my wife <laughs> about my desire to uh, to go do it. And then finally in, uh, I guess, late 2016, she said, uh, put up or shut up, go do it. So I, I, I booked my flight for September the 10th, or to arrive in, in Spain on September the 10th, 2017. And 2000, it was a combination of, I just turned uh, 66. I, uh, September the 10th is a monumental date in my life because that's the day that I, I left New York City to go in the Army back in 1968. And I just, it was just all these profound uh, issues all happening at once. And that's the day I took off for the Camino or started the Camino. Yeah. Let's go back way back. I've never met anyone okay. before who was born on the Island of Manhattan. You just mentioned there when you left <laughs> New York, you're a, tu- a true New Yorker, aren't you? Yeah. I, um, I was born, uh, St. Elizabeth's hospital in midtown Manhattan, 1951, uh, sadly, I, after I got born, I got handed off to some nuns that were running a orphanage in White Plains, New York, called Cardinal McCluskey's. And from birth till I was seven years old, um, I stayed with the uh, Dominican nuns at Cardinal McCluskey's. And it, back then, it was it was officially an orphanage, but I don't think anywhere in the United States anymore. They officially call them orphanages anymore. It's more of a social services yeah, yeah. Uh, group home type thing. Yeah, but but they, it was a legitimate orphanage. They, they told you something when you were seven. They said something to you, and it resonated and rang in your ears for the rest of your life, really, didn't it? Well, they introduced me to this family that um, had, they had, because of Irish... Irish um, strong Catholic upbringing and 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 their traditional old Irish ways really can't hold it against them. It was more uh, what they were doing at the time. But I was handed off to my grandparents, and not knowing that these people were my grandparents, I was just told my parents had died in a car wreck, and these people, the Dankers, were going to. Uh, raise you and ad- adopt you. So I went along with it until I was uh, a teenager in eighth grade. And when I found out about it, um, it was, uh, they paid holy hell for it. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of, res- I resented the whole premise. I had, I, had, I had hurt my grandmother by saying to her several times, and it was just me being a stupid teenager said to her, I wish she had left me well enough alone and left me with the nuns. But my grandmother was just trying to do right by me. And uh, being a stupid teenager, I re- resented it. And to this day, I, uh, I regret that very much. But school was very difficult for you, wasn't it? Yes. I, uh, back then, I was uh, lazy, dumb, and just uh, not living up to my potential but today they call it dyslexia yeah so yeah things have changed in uh, a bunch of years but it took a bunch of years to do it yeah I, mean, I want to talk about dyslexia because really despite that you have 
had, I don't know, if suffered from or, or dealt with is probably the right way of putting it, dealt with dyslexia your entire life. You've managed to really make something of your life, and that's a terrific achievement. But next up, Thank you. next up, the real, I suppose, significant chapter in your life was Vietnam and life as a soldier. Were you drafted? No. When I, in 1968, I turned 17 on a Sunday, September the 8th, 1968, and it's the only time in my life that I went to two masses at my local church in the Bronx. And uh, I, you know, basically made a deal with God that if, uh, if he uh, gave me the chance to uh, get accepted into the army, um, I would be forever grateful and live up to whatever thing I had to live up to. Um, uh, I was basically a 90 pound weakling. I, my only athletic ability was running the mile in high school. And uh, uh, my grandfather would tease me saying that uh, no, no way am I going to pass the induction physical. But uh, much to my surprise, much to my more so to my grandfather's surprise, on September the 9th, I took the physical. On September the 10th, with all the papers signed by my guardian grandparents, um, I was accepted into the U.S. Army. I took the oath, and I never looked back. I, I, um, uh, I got homesick for sure in the military, thinking I made a big mistake, but that too passed. And I, uh, I went in at 17, and um, at 17 years old back then, you weren't allowed to go to a combat zone, and my military occupational skill was infantryman slash paratrooper. And um, I um, had made a deal with my grandmother not to go to Vietnam. So I re-enlisted to go to Germany. But in Germany, uh, she passed away when I was there. Um, and then I felt, well, now all bets are off. If I get a chance, I'm going to volunteer for Vietnam. And I did at 19 years of age, I got my orders and I shipped out for Vietnam. and in um, February 1970. Let's, we'll talk about that in a minute. I saw some fantastic photographs of you in Vietnam, and you really are nothing more than a boy. I mean, you're only... It's incredible to think that, that you went through that, you experienced that as such a young man. But just before we do, let me ask you a question. What do you think when you hear about people who dodged the draft? I, I have resentment to this day. Um, I have resentment against uh, our so-called president that we have right now, uh, a man of, um, of privilege that was in a military academy. Um, I, I totally understand having a draft deferment because draft deferments back then were issued for you to stay in college. If you were passing college and not, um, not just uh, there to horse around and, and fail, um, you could avoid the defer the draft. And I don't mind. I have a lot of friends that did that. But to actually um, avoid the draft by subterfuge or lying or uh, even the guys that went to Canada at the time, I don't have much respect for them. I, um, my attitude is that there's, there's 58,478 or 28 names on the Vietnam Memorial and none of those boys or men um, wanted to pass away in Vietnam. Um, some of them were drafted. Some of them enlisted. Some were officers. Some were just enlisted guys like me. We all had the same dream, that is to get to come back home to the States. Um, it's it's uh, shameful for uh, an American, to, in my opinion, it's shameful for an American to... to um, brag about, well, I avoided uh, Vietnam by subterfuge or lying when there's, in fact, 58,000 guys that weren't so lucky. And uh, uh, whether they died heroes or whether they died, uh, you know, not heroes, but they all were heroes. Um, it, it's just hard. It's hard for me to stomach yeah. um, that whole behavior back then. Yeah, yeah. From there... 
college in New Mexico, which I imagine <laughs> in those days was a long way from Manhattan. Yes. I, <laughs> I think I told you the story on our, our eight-hour snowbound trip back to the Bay Area. But um, so it goes like this. A uh, bunch of friends in my neighborhood that had gone off to uh, really prestigious Catholic high schools. Um, they, I went off to a public school because I didn't have the grades to make it into the prestigious Catholic high schools. Um, they still stayed my friends. And when I off, went off to Vietnam, uh, I was the oddity in the neighborhood. I was the odd guy that, you know, was, oh yeah, Brian's in Vietnam and nobody else in the neighborhood was there. And uh, they they wrote me letters when I was in Vietnam more than my my own grandparents and uh, my grandfather. And uh, I uh, I stayed in the bond with those guys. And when I came back from Vietnam and uh, I was back in New York on a, a weekend leave and I was in a bar having one beer. It took one beer and a conversation that um, it took six months of paperwork along with that conversation that I should apply for this nondescript, unknown little Catholic college in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Well, um, I got out of the Army in uh, June of 73, and six months later, or during those six months, I got a letter saying I was accepted as a freshman starting the uh, spring semester of January 1974 at the College of Santa Fe, Santa Fe, New Mexico. But I, uh, <laughs> I, I got out to Santa Fe by myself. I drove from New York to Santa Fe. It's something like a five-day trip Gosh. back then. Yeah. And uh, I got to Santa Fe in a blizzard, a snow blizzard, something to, to the level of snow that you got to see for the first time when you were in Lake Tahoe. And uh, I, I looked at the address in a moment of frustration because everything in the town of Santa Fe, New Mexico, is Spanish-named. Uh, De Los Conquistadores, Agua Fria, uh, um, Sorrios Road, St. Francis Drive, St. Michael's Drive, but nothing, nothing in English. And um, the address on the piece of paper was 109D West Manhattan Street. And I'm sitting in a snow blizzard, really frustrated because I can't find this address that I'm supposed to report to where everybody said to go to this house. Everybody's at this house waiting for school to start again. And it dawns on me that the address is similar to the address of the address I was raised with, raised in New York City in the Manhattan district of New York called Inwood at my aunt's house, which was 109D Seaman Avenue. And the thought came across my mind <laughs> that maybe I'm going to have a justifiable, justifiable reason to commit a homicide. <laughs> so and you think I've, you've been pranked. Oh, boy. Before. All the way over the, the, the other side punk, of America. <laughs> no. Yes, that this idiot named Brian fell for it no. and went all the way out west, you know, on a whim. So um, on a lie. So I saw a bunch of kids having a snowball fight, and my last frustrated move was I rolled down the window of the car, pulled up in the snow blizzard, and I said, guys, that's a question for directions. They came over to my car, and I said, you guys ever heard of this street, West Manhattan Street? And the kid, the kid laughed at me and he said, yeah, mister, it's right there. So I looked over my left shoulder, and there's a sign, a street sign, and it can barely make out the word in the snow blizzard, the word Manhattan. And I can't tell you how much of a relief settled in my stomach at that moment. And then I drove up the street, and sure enough, it's 109D, this nondescript little adobe house where I knock on the door, one guy comes to the door, the place is in shambles, there's sleeping bags all over the floor, open cases of beer, and what it was is this was an off-campus house that everybody that was coming back from New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, from the college was crashing at, waiting for the college to reopen the dorms for the spring semester. So uh, they said, oh, yeah, you're Brian Danker. We've been waiting for you. There you and go. And again, 
a big sigh of relief. And then they took me that afternoon, they took me over to this bar in Santa Fe called the Green Onion. And it was the only Irish bar in all of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I, if your listeners are listening to this thinking, well, they've been to Santa Fe, they might get the humor out of the fact of an Irish bar in the middle of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Well, there at the bar, are two of my childhood friends working behind the bar and just waiting to greet me with big smiles on their face, telling me, welcome to the College of Santa Fe. And I got to spend three years after five years in the military, a year in combat and all that, I got to defuse with the nicest people in the world all right there at the College of Santa Fe, which doesn't exist anymore. It went belly under financially. Oh, no. Oh, that's a shame that, because that's a great yeah. story. It's a great story to finally have found after all those years acceptance. I, I assume that you, you found some form of acceptance in the military, but it would have been on a fairly short fuse at any given time. I mean, such is the nature of that, that sort of that role. But from New Mexico... The next chapter of your life is San Francisco. You actually went up to be a fireman, but ended up a policeman. And you you mentioned at the top of the interview some 28 years in the San Francisco Police Department, but you ended up, Brian, as, as an inspector of police. So let me ask you this. How does a boy who's lived his whole life with dyslexia end up earning those stripes? Okay, so I started off with... I. I went out to California on a motorcycle trip, um, and one of the guys that I went to college with in Santa Fe uh, lived in a town called Burlingame near the San Francisco airport. And I stayed with them, and they lived in a very upscale um, neighborhood in Burlingame, and his father was a very successful attorney, former FBI agent. And one night while I was there, uh, my friend Joe said to me, my dad's in a den and he wants to talk to you. And I go, Joe, I said, this is Leave it to Beaver? That was a TV show back then. <laughs> I said, what do you call Why does your den want to talk to me in a den? Dad want to talk to me in a den. And he said, just do it. Just go talk to my dad. Because he knew what his dad was going to ask me or offer me. So his dad offered me uh, the chance to leave my motorcycle in California, to fly back to Santa Fe, to say the heck with the College of Santa Fe, because my GI Bill at the time was not staying toe-to-toe with the cost of tuition in Santa Fe. just was getting higher and higher, and there wasn't enough part-time jobs in Santa Fe for me to let everything balance out for me to stay in school and graduate. So I took him up on the offer. I lived with the Galligans for a few months in Burlingame until I got my own apartment. And to this very day, I'm so grateful to that family for giving me that chance. And... Um, a short time after I moved out here, I got hired by the San Jose Police Department. And I was in their police academy, and I was in the ninth week. And lo and behold, my dyslexia caught up with me, and I failed a major, a major report writing exam. And they had to fire me. They, that was just, um, you, you know, you're not cutting it. A job of a policeman is basically to write reports, to yeah. note behaviors and, yeah. and statements and, and write and write and write. And this is San, so, uh, this is San, sorry, Brian, but this is San Jose Police Department. Yes, San yeah. Jose Police Department. Okay, go on. So sorry. That was in 1978. So uh, I, you know, was going to school and working a bunch of part-time jobs in the Bay Area. And uh, I got a chance to go up to San Francisco because San Francisco had this crazy rule back then that to get a civil service job, a city job, in San Francisco, you had to live within the city limits. So I moved into San Francisco and I took the San Francisco fireman's test. And I was, I was happy as a lark because I knew that at least as a fireman, I wasn't going to be required uh, to depend on my um, inability to write reports if I just stayed a fireman. I knew it was an honorable job, uh, a great job working with a team and, and in a beautiful city where there was a lot of calls for service. So I'm all set to become a fireman. And lo and behold, the courts got involved. And because the years and years prior to me getting on the test or taking the test, the city had, the fire department had been committing acts of racial prejudice 
uh, unbeknownst to me, they, there was a lot of black men and Asian men and Latino men coming back from Vietnam. They should have been hired on the fire department, but instead they were racially profiling and only allowing white boys on the fire department. And, and it came back to bite them. The fire department got taken to court and the judges said, uh, this ain't happening. And uh, they threw out the list and my, I got shattered. I was, I was heartbroken that I wasn't going to go on the fire department. And then one day a friend of mine said, Hey, that building right there. I said, what building? He pointed to it. It was the police headquarters. They're taking applications right now for their next test. And I rolled my eyes thinking, well, that's going to be a waste of time. So anyway, I, I, I did it anyway. I took the test and I got to the level where they were doing my background investigation and I get called up to the uh, investigation floor where all the investigation officers were. And there was no room in the, uh, in the, uh, no room in the other interrogation rooms or interview rooms. So the background officer that I had at the time brought me in the homicide, brought me into one of the interrogation rooms that bad guys, murderers would have to confess in. And, uh, he threw my file down in front of me really hard on the desk and just intimidate me and said, um, is there anything in this file that I need to know that's going to disqualify you from being a San Francisco police recruit in the academy? So I looked at him and I said, well, yeah, uh, I have an albatross around my neck and I don't think you're going to accept me. So he said, what the F is an albatross? <laughs> and, and I said, well, it's, uh, it's, it's an old seafarer's um, legend, you know, an albatross is bad luck. And, um, and I have a cloud over me because of what I did. And so what did you do? And I said, well, I flunked out of the San Jose Academy because of dyslexia. Anyway, uh, be, because of report writing. So he had been in my room at my house talking to my landlady. And he saw that on the wall of my room, I had my bronze star that I was awarded when I was in the army in Vietnam. And he said, he said, I've been to your house and I've been to your apartment in your room. And I saw that bronze star on the wall. Is that yours? Go, yes, sir. Did you earn it? And I said, yes, sir. He said, then don't effing worry about report writing. We'll get through it. And I looked at him and he said, you know, inside I'm going, you got to be freaking kidding me. Because this is old school uh, police tradition, not the high tech, uh, fast moving police departments of today. Today, a combat vet couldn't get hired on a police department because they know that they come with PTSD. Sure. Um, uh, a, a, a person can't get hired on the police department, uh, even though you have spell check and word perfect and all that stuff, but they wouldn't hire you on a police department with dyslexia. So I, I got into the San Francisco police department just at the end of a dinosaur era. Yeah. And, and I'm so, so grateful that I was the last of the dinosaurs. Yeah. And then, and then you end up as an inspector of police, 28 years in the job, you retire, you and Barbara settled in Redwood city. Uh, the Camino comes into your life. You explained how that all came about are you someone who considers yourself a religious person brian or is spirituality something you consider well okay so when when i was on the camino one of my camino angels was a catholic priest and he asked me he said uh um do you go to church or are you catholic and i said well i have to apologize father because I'm, I'm a bad catholic i don't go to mass and when I do, it's just, you know, special occasions, mm. uh, weddings, funerals, and Christmas. And he said, no, I've gotten to know you. And the way you've lived your life, you lived your life by way of being a good Catholic. He said, being, going to heaven, you're not going to pull out a rule book and say, you went to Mass so many times, and you went to confession so many times, and you received the sacraments so many times. He says, St. Peter's not going to give a shit about those numbers. He's only going to give a damn about how you lived your life and how you treated other people under the philosophy of being a Catholic. And I said, well, I'll go with that. <laughs> so, so am I spiritual? Uh, I'm both. I'm, I, I pray. I 
I have a rosary. Um, I, I go to mass occasionally. Um, my wife's Presbyterian, and I actually enjoy some of the sermons at her church more so than I do homilies at my Catholic church because it's it's um, a little redundant and um, and not contemporary. And I, I don't know. I um, I'm stuck between both worlds. I mm. I appreciate my Catholic faith. I'm proud of my Catholic faith, but do I go to mass? Do I do I keep up the numbers? No, I don't. But I'm I- sorry to say that. But having spent some time with you four or five days, I can tell you that you are the ultimate Christian in many ways. You're kind and you're thoughtful, you're respectful, you're very courteous and and sharing and caring. You are the ultimate Christian, really, if you, even if you don't see yourself as one. Um, you oh, really thank are. You, Dan. No, no, I really mean that. You are an incredibly generous person, an incredibly considerate and kind person, and and you ought to hold your head up high. I think that priest whom whom we're about to talk about nailed it on the hit the nail right on the head. So just tell us about those Camino angels because they've really had a big impact on your life. So I I went off to Spain by myself, and um, I wasn't a, a spreadsheet pilgrim. I was definitely going to do it by the seat of my pants. I uh, um, I flew into Madrid from Madrid. I took uh, what did I do? I took a bus to Pamplona, and then in Pamplona bus station, I saw these two people with scallop shells off their backpacks. I introduced myself, and I knew from everything I had read that this is what you do. You you meet somebody in the the bus station in Pamplona, and you share a shuttle ride up over the mountain into France to St. Jean, Pierre de Port. And uh, luckily, they befriended me right away. And off we went on that shuttle. Um, we, uh, I didn't have a hotel reservation in St. Jean, they did. And I followed them like a, like a, like a, a stray dog that just found a friend. I followed them to the hotel that they had booked. And I, after they all got all checked in and got their keys to their room, I'm standing in front of the, uh, the old French man and I said, you have a room i don't have any reservation so he says a uh, passport please and i hand him the passport and, and next thing i know i'm getting a key to a room and and from there i uh went out to dinner with them that night to saint john we hung around uh because we had heard that um over in the old part of saint john that the uh, communal office was going to reopen at 9 30 at night which yeah. i thought uh this can't be true you know, this, everything shut down. Everything was boarded up and, you know, a real quiet little town. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, this is ridiculous, 9.30 at night. But sure enough, it, it opened. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I, I got my passport and, you know, and then the Mets is though, they were staying in St. Jean for another day. So I, you know, I realized I wasn't going to be a burden to them or impose. So I um, went back to the hotel and, Slept one more night, got up the next morning, and uh, said, off we go. And um, I had a bag that had, I had too much stuff. I, uh, my backpack weighed 30 pounds and maybe even more. Um, and I had another bag that uh, contained, you know, that it was a duffel bag that I put my backpack in and my hiking poles. And, and um, I had that bag to contend with, plus a day pack that was even more weight. So I was like really, I was really not, not prepared for what I was about to endure. So how much do you and, think, uh, how much do you think everything weighed collectively? Um, easily 35 pounds. Gosh, 17 kilos. Yeah, I know. Wow. I know. <laughs> no, not the smartest, not the smartest kid in the shed. Or not, not the sharpest tool in the shed, as they say. Anyway, uh, I took off uh, heading up to uh, Orosan, and right before I got got there, these four Irish uh, men um, with all thick brogues saw me. They were all from um, an alcohol rehab group that were doing the Camino together, and they saw that I was hasty white, and I was shaky as I'm trying to make it up the trail. So they go over to me, and they start talking to me. I'm, I guess, babbling. At this point, so they took my backpack off me. They sat me down. They asked me how much how uh, how much water 
have I been drinking? And I realized I haven't. And they made me drink some water. And then I think they carried my backpack the rest of the way into the, the little uh, building at Orison. And then, um, and then I, uh, <laughs> and I think I destroyed the outhouse right directly across the street. I mean, part, across the road from the, from Orison's, um, uh, intake office and restaurant. And then I, uh, um, they got me to drink some soup and I got, I got my second wind and then I, um, I did it the rest of the way into Roncesvalles and, uh, uh, I was, I was spent. I had, I think I started walking out of St. Jean at six o'clock in the morning. And I think I got into Roncesvalles about five o'clock in the evening. Oh, and, yeah. And they still had room in the end. They still had room, and I, I got my backpack in there. I mean, I had to present my passport and go through all that formality. And then they gave me a, a, a number of my bunk, and I found my bunk, and I got to go over and eat. And and then I finally started to take in that that uh, huh, I'm in this, I'm in this, whether I like it or not. Um, <laughs> I I uh, I was much I was much more surprised that I did what I did. And uh, got through with it, and that those are my first Camino Angels. Those four guys from Ireland. But then um, I hiked on to Zabiri. Uh, yep. And then from Zabiri, um, I made it into Pamplona, and then I uh, I had I had dinner in the restaurant, or I had tapas, I guess, in the restaurant where that was made famous by Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. And at one point, <laughs> at one point, my proudest picture of the Camino is uh, the waiter explained to me that down below the main bar and restaurant, there's another bar. And if I go down there, I can meet Ernest Hemingway. So I looked at him and go, okay. So I go down with my beer and I'm, there's nobody in the bar except for me and this British policeman that I met at dinner. And the two of us took pictures of ourselves drinking beer and and uh, talking to Ernest Hemingway. They had a, a six-foot bronze statue yeah, yeah. of Ernest Hem- Hemingway bellied up to the bar. And they say in legend that Ernest Hemingway was uh, full of hot air and uh, um, always, always liked to talk. So you might say Ernest Hemingway got to meet me. And I did all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about tell us about the Catholic priest and the and and Moira. Okay, so I um, I made it out of Pamplona, and my legs were killing me really badly, and I I cowered out, I chickened out, and I went back into Pamplona, and I went to the train station, and I said, okay, I'm going to uh, regroup. I'm going to just cut the Camino in half and I'm going to just go on to Lyon because I knew it was, I saw that there was a next stop to Lyon. So in Lyon, I, I stayed at a Benedictine, uh, a Bergay, Yeah. And I, through misunderstanding of not being able to speak Dutch and the Dutch guy not being able to understand this ex New Yorker, um, I, I, in the miscommunication, I wanted to send my backpack and gear on ahead. And the guy was super rude to me. And, you know, it's the Camino. You don't, you don't get rude with people. You just, you know, you flow with it or you just walk away from anybody that's rude. So this guy um, he yelled at me and it was like something clicked in me. I go, no, my days of being yelled at are over with. So I, I just stepped away from the desk and I walked over to a nun that was there. And I said, you know, this guy really shouldn't be dealing with the public if he's going to be rude like that. And I just, in my frustration, I grabbed my backpack and I went off to the train station. And at the train station, I'm looking up at the electronic board and I saw that I was looking for the next train to Madrid and I was going to chicken out. I was going to go home. And I'm looking at the time and it sees that I see that it's a three-hour wait before the next train's leaving for Madrid. And I look over to my left shoulder and there's this girl She's got a backpack in the chair next to her, and from the backpack is a scallop shell. She's a obviously a, a Pellegrino, and uh, I I said, "Are you you're doing the Camino?" 
And she, you know, we're only a distance apart. And she said, yes. And I said, she said, where are you going? And I said, well, I think I'm going home. I think I'm going back to going to go fly, go back to Madrid by train and then fly home. And then I said, where are you going? She said, well, I'm taking the next train to Saria. And, and I said, when's that? And she said, well, that's about three hours out. So while I'm standing there talking with her, I said, you want to go do lunch down the block from the train station instead of just being in this crowded station? And she took me up on it. She said, yes. Well, her name was Mara, and she was from Galway, Ireland. And we had it like an hour lunch and with our backpacks right next to our table there and um, got to talking. And she said that the following day, her friend, her, uh, a male friend named Kieran, was flying in from Belfast, and the two of them were going to finish their Camino together because they were parceling out the Camino uh, when they had vacation time, they were doing it. So she talked me into not wimping out to uh, uh, manning, up, manning up, and she invited me to uh, take the train with her that night to Saria, and that we were going to uh, either meet Kieran that night at the Aburgay, or we were going to meet him the following day. And then I said to her, um, well, no, I don't want to impose on your boyfriend and you, you know, like you guys do the Camino enjoy it without some rude New Yorker, ex-New Yorker being tagging along. He said, no, you don't understand. My friend Kieran is a Catholic priest <laughs> and he has a parish in, uh, in Belfast. And, and I said, okay. And then, so we went to Saria that evening. We went out into a restaurant in an old part of Saria. And then, uh, the next day, uh, we met Kieran. And uh, Kieran was this six foot four, uh, gigantic ex rugby player, Irishman, um, Catholic priest, and he worked in a prison in Belfast. And he had in his uh, it was a maximum security prison. So he had three types of murderers that he um, uh, serviced every day, and that was uh, sociopathic murderers, uh, political per murderers that were unionists and other murderers that were political uh, Republicans. And, uh, you know, the Protestants, the Catholics, and the sociopaths, so psychopaths. So um, I got to meet no Kieran. We went out to breakfast that morning. And then I, you know, reaffirmed with him, was it okay that I went along with you guys? And he said, you know, it'd be an honor. You know, you'll, you'll enjoy it. So their, their Camino... They, they met in Saria because they were going back one more town backwards to Tricastella. Uh -huh. And then from Tricastella, they were marching back into, walking back into Saria, and then from Saria on to Santiago. So we did that. And um, um, they, um, uh, comically, we were laughing all the way. Uh, uh, Kieran had a great time making fun of me. Um, uh, what do you call it? I didn't dare make fun of him. Um, Mara was, was really an angel and she, uh, Mara was asking me all these questions about how come my barber isn't with me. And I was like getting, getting really homesick for my more Mara would question me and interrogate me about why isn't Barbara with me. I, I started feeling more and more homesick being back with Barbara and my wife. And, um, uh, um, we, we finished it all. The, we went all the way to Santiago together, except for the town right before Santiago, the night before we were going to hike in, uh, Mara came to me and, and asked, and she didn't want to hurt my feelings. She said, Kieran and I know that you're walking at a slower pace and we're on a tight time schedule. We're going to march on ahead of you and you're going to have to finish the last leg of this by yourself, but we're going to meet you in the square in front of the cathedral when you get there, whenever you get there. So I said, oh, you know, this is so sweet of you to consider me like this. And yes, you're not hurting my feelings at all. I'm honored that I got to spend this much time with you. And, uh, and that's exactly what we did. The next morning I woke up, they were already gone. Um, it was my turn to, you know, pack my stuff and be alone on the Camino, just like I was when I left St. Jean-Pierre de Port 
and and went up to Orison and Orison to Roncesvalles and to Pamplona, and um, um, and I you know I I made it in. I was hurting. Oh God, I was hurting when I got into Santiago, and um, it's all because of those two. And then uh, I'll get into it where uh, last year my wife had to endure an entire year from 2017 when I got back all the way <laughs> to the summer of 2018 of me talking about Mara and Kieran. And we specifically had a tour in Ireland that we cut short just to break away from that tour to go to Galway so my wife could meet Mara and Kieran. Yeah. And I was so proud to sit in a bar restaurant and sit back and, and I didn't say a word and I just watched Mara and Kieran uh, tease my wife about being married to me and my wife, my wife just, uh, you know, agreeing with, with, with them and, and, uh, and her asking them, well, he did, he did this. Did he talk about being a San Francisco cop? Oh God. He talked about that. Did he? You know, so like they went on and on and on, but I was so proud of watching the two of them interrogate my wife and, and the subject of conversation was me. That's and, fantastic. Uh, the laughs we had. And that, then when we got into Santiago, we had time to uh, take a bus to Fenstera. And we didn't walk from Santiago to Fenstera. We, we busted. And uh, I'm so proud of that picture of me holding my uh, pilgrim's passport with the last stamp that said, end of the world. Yeah. And uh, I, I had tears when I heard those bagpipes um, in, the, in the fog up in Fenestera. And then Kieran got to say mass. Um, when Mara and I, we all three of us went to mass together in the cathedral and we got to see the, uh, the incense uh, be swung from wow. the ceiling by yeah. the, the Knights of the Templar. And it was an honor to see that. And, and uh, it was comical because there's signs all over the place, no cameras. And then the minute that you realize the Knights of the Templar guys in the hoods are there because they're going to be swinging that, that Aaron from the ceiling. Uh, everybody breaks out their iPhone. Yeah, that did. And it was like, a, it looked like a rock concert. Everybody had their iPhone. Yeah. Down. Yeah. What, what did you make Brian of walking in the footsteps of millions of pilgrims before you? I, I, I kept waiting for an epiphany to happen when I finally got to Santiago, but maybe I was a little bit guilt-ridden that I didn't do the whole 500 miles on foot and that I had cut some of cheated and had taken the train yeah. uh, and cut some of it short. Sure. And I, so like a little bit of the, the uh, epiphany, the emotional uh, breakdown that I've seen other people have in the square in front of the cathedral. I, I was, I was searching for that and I, I didn't have it, but I did have it when um, I saw the Aaron, Aaron, the, um, the incense being swung from the ceiling. I, I got emotional then, and I definitely got emotional in Fenstera listening to the bagpipes. Yeah. And I, I really do believe that, you know, Camino begins when you get home. Because sure. it's the way you carry your life thereafter. So and, well, let me just ask you this. What can a retired San Francisco cop learn about himself from walking the Camino? I, I, first thing I, I felt was, you know, I had the urge to get out of my comfort zone. And, and, uh, and I definitely did that. And I, I learned that, uh, um, I learned that, uh, you know, to appreciate I was appreciating all the gifts that I've been given, all the breaks that I've been given, all the, the blessings I've been given, whether it was my grandmother uh, adopting me when she didn't have to, to uh, uh, God let me get in the Army when, uh, when I was a 90-pound weakling, to survive in combat in Vietnam, to, you know, uh, some, you know just uh, surviving friendships and not losing those friendships and those friends looked out for me after I came back from the service. Those friends to this day are still, uh, so just a phone call away. Yeah. And, uh, I, I learned to appreciate, um, 
I learned to appreciate my marriage more than anything else because I, I had never been away from Barbara before uh, for this amount of time. And, you know, I left her with the dog. She was, she was back in school because it was September. So she had to put up with kids every day and get home, walk the dog. You know, the dog's got to be tired out every day before you get your own restful rest. Otherwise, the dog will bug the heck out of you. So I left her with, you know, a house. I basically threatened all the neighbors and told them and said, you look in on Barbara while I'm gone. Otherwise, you're going to hear it from me, whether from the grave or from, from you know, when I get back, I'm, you're going to hear it from me. So, so everybody, everybody had due diligence in taking care of my barber while I was away. Um, I learned to appreciate my wife more than anything else. Um, you know, uh, we both, you know, are, are victims of broken hearts in prior relationships and, uh, um, we were lucky enough to get to meet at a Christmas party and uh, kindle a relationship and friendship that we had many, many years ago, and uh, which led to a marriage. Yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful marriage, too. I've seen you in your natural habitat. You're much loved by your family and your neighbours, indeed your community. And I, I think that, part, that it goes a long way to shaping who you are. What would you say, Brian, to someone who is dyslexic? and perhaps has not dealt with it? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that are, uh, a lot of prisoners in our in institutional system in America uh, have learning disabilities. And um, that's like one of the blessings I have that I never went down that route. But, um, you know, the dyslexia thing carries a stigma with it. And it's an ugly stigma that's not true. And... Uh, you know, you can name off dozens of actors, starting with Tom Cruise, and and they're all successful people. And I don't know how they do it because all actors have to read a script, yeah, and memorize the script and go out and, and then uh, pontificate that script, um, which is amazing that they can do that. But um, I would say, uh, um, don't don't let it hold you back. I didn't let it hold me back. I would always. Uh, joke or whatever cop I worked with when I was in uniform saying, uh, you know, I, I can't spell. I'll write the report tonight, but you're damn sure going to help me spell the words in that report. <laughs> and they would look at me, you know, disgustingly, but they had, a, you know, I said, well, do you want to write the report? Then shut up and help me spell these words. <laughs> and they would, yeah. they would put up with me. Well, and well, then I had sergeant, sergeants that, you know, appreciated the fact that I uh, was willing to to uh, take a call for service, have to write a five-page report, and, you know, they would hand it back to me with all these corrections, but they appreciated my work ethic more so than my inability, my handicap. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I did go back and have to rewrite numerous reports, and, uh, and, and you know, like I had a sergeant that, you know, red-penned everything, and, uh, no, this is wrong, this is wrong, and, uh, you know, hand it back to me, and it was... Um, it was humbling. It was embarrassing sometimes. And uh, uh, I didn't, in the end, I got the last laugh because I, I'm the one who got promoted. And in the end, it was my job to criticize other guys' police reports for their lack of the elements of the crime. Yeah. And their poor statements that they took from victims. And I got to be, you know, I got to be the guy that said, oh, no, that's not right. So it was, yeah. was kind of like, it was kind of comical in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because uh, I didn't share with every cop the handicap that I had, but I, uh, I, appreciated, uh, I appreciated my position and never let it go to my head. What would you say to someone who has a child who is dyslexic? Go get speech pathology help. I have a, I have a niece back in Virginia, Northern Virginia, and she runs a speech pathology clinic, and I get to watch what she does, and she's all over Facebook, and uh, um, I'm so, so proud of her. And I, I tease her all the time, as, you know, saying, um, where were you when I needed you when I was yeah. a little kid, you know? <laughs> so it's like, well, God, well, dummy, I wasn't born yet. Yeah. But anyway, uh, she... Uh, um, she does amazing things with uh, 
with kids every single day that have uh, dyslexia as a handicap. And it, it definitely can screw up a kid's ego. Yeah. If, uh, if the wrong person um, uh, dwells on the dyslexia handicap and doesn't appreciate the fact that it's, it's a disability. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, and everyone has a right to be honored with their disability and to be accommodated with their disability. I remember uh, somebody at school one of my boys' schools many years ago, one of the teachers said, we pride ourselves here on children not falling through the cracks. And one of the parents said that there shouldn't be cracks. And I I, I really like that. I've always liked that philosophy. What would you say to somebody thinking of walking the Camino de Santiago, Brian? Uh, Just like every single other person you've interviewed (laughs) in your 160-plus interviews that you've done, I would say all together now, just do it. Um, <laughs> you know, there's even a lot. There's a logic in doing the Camino that, well, you know, I'm not in shape to do the Camino. Well, you know what? If your backpack's not too heavy, like mine, um, three days, four days, five days into it, guess what's happening? You're getting into shape, despite yourself. You're, you know, you're doing 15 miles a day, and you're in a you're, you know, you're done by, oh, I was going to tease you because in your, my, your song that I love along the way, uh, you say seven bells to four. And I had to ask you when I had you at my house, I said, what does that mean? And you said, we well, started seven and you know, you're done by four. And I go, no, 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 Dan. I started at six and I was done by two. <laughs> <laughs> six bells to two doesn't have the same, the same rhythm. Yes. I mean, yes. <laughs> and you know, and if I didn't, if I didn't have such a stupid heavy pack, and if I had had, uh, you know, listened to other other people, first of all, you never buy a pack that's too big because it tends to cause you to pack more stuff. In. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and uh, I showed you my pack that I took on the Camino, and I showed you my pack that I want to take on the Camino, and I, it's definitely considerably. Um, almost yeah. half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Half, no, it's crazy. Crazy different. Look, we're running out of time. Tell us a Camino story. Okay. Uh, the Camino story, uh, besides meeting Ernest Hemingway, um, that that chance meeting of looking over my left shoulder and seeing Mara sitting there with her backpack and the scallop shell, um, that, as Clint East would say, would say, made my day it made my camino uh that proceeded to you know the conversation the conversation uh the agreement to go to saria meeting kieran walking on with mara and kieran um uh, just that that's the quintessential moment of the camino angels that uh came out of their way for me uh you know they they didn't have to do what they did and they really were kind people. So that's the moment. I began by saying I learned a lot about Brian Danker traveling between California and Nevada last month, but I also learned a lot from Brian Danker. So thank you so much for the friendship, adventures and memories, my friend. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Uh, enjoy your evening there sitting in front of the fire pit in the backyard, not very far from your hot tub. Uh, the, the author Patrick <laughs> Lindsay once wrote, every new friend is a new adventure, the start of more memories. Thank you so much for the adventure, the friendship and the hey, memories. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Buen Camino. Thank you so much. God bless. My guest this week, the retired San Francisco police officer and pilgrim, Brian Danker. If that's not a good story, I'll give it away. Thanks for your company this week and every week. I love having the opportunity to talk to pilgrims every week, to learn from them and to be, in some small way, part of their journey too. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Somewhere along the way Somewhere along the way